Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done by folks who have used the historical collections at the Hagley Library, especially scholars who have received support from the Hagley Center in the form of research grants and fellowships of different kinds. One such scholar joins me today, Min Suk Jung is a PhD candidate at the University of Albany. Minsook, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, let's start by painting with broad strokes. What is it that you're researching and writing about? So um, my dissertation um, tried to place anti-monopoly politics against Standard Oil in the context of energy transition from organic aluminum to kerosene. So kerosene was um, the flagship uh, product of the Standard Oil and also is uh, the main petroleum product at the time. So whenever I um, review the, the big literature in Standard Oil, it tends to focus on business history, which focus on the development of modern corporation and um, legal history, which focused on the evolution of antitrust law. But um, I got a sense that it seldom talk about what was the actual product sold by um, Standard Oil and how those experiences are um, um, experiences were related to the anti-monopoly sentiments of different people in the um, the commodity chain. So um, I so then I tried to um, retell this sto story from the perspective of, not perspective, but from the focus on kerosene. Mm -hmm. So kerosene was invented in 1848. And when it was um, first commercialized, it was deemed as a kind of ideal chemical compound that promised a lot of opportunities for the people. So not only for you know the business profit in the oil field, but also it um, promised the increased um, standard of living. But however, um, kerosene also brought environmental risks such as uh, fires and explosions. And it's a kind of unprecedented scale of environmental risks. And one chemist actually said that the lives and properties consumed by kerosene fires are even greater than those lost in the War of American Independence. So it was a huge um, environmental program uh, during this period. So. Um, my idea was to focus on how people um, deal with these ambivalent material conditions with um, that had both promises and challenges. So, um, so, um, so it's not only about the oil producers in the oil field, but also merchants who distributed those products. And also there were inspectors and scientists who tried to comprehend those risks. And also the ordinary users who should deal with this product at their own homes. So, um, so I, I kind of got a sense that these people shared a common social consciousness of belonging to the some sort of professional class. So that was because um, these people, um, regardless of their places, they um, use they they employed the modern science and technology to tame the nature or the materiality of kerosene at each place, and they get a sense that it was themselves who deal with the material, and in the rewards they get. Um, 
you know, their economic and social gains. For example, um, the oil producers get their fortunes and, you know, uh, the merchants get their profits and um, the inspectors achieve the public safety. And uh, for the users, ordinary users, they can seize the cheap um, and durable life and also that promise um, more time for reading and work at night and which um, symbolize the enhanced social status. So, um, these stories um, uh, and, and these kind of um, games played with these actors with kerosene was intervened by Standard Oil uh, beginning from the 1870s. Mm -hmm. So when Standard Oil emerged and it, it, it justified its monopolization by claiming that um, they would take over the risks. But however, um, so, so, um, Actually, in the early period, some of these actors believed that and they welcomed Standard Oil. But they soon realized that Standard Oil was unwilling or unable to uh, contain those risks. Um, actually, Standard Oil did some in, you know, especially in its own refining facility and trading routes, but it also left um, many risks in especially in the oil field and, and consuming sector. So this frustration, I want to argue, um, played a crucial role in connecting this anti-monopoly sentiment in different places. And it kind of precipitate the um, antitrust movement in the United States against Standard Oil. And um, so, so uh, yeah, so that's the broader description. Yeah. Well, I love your project, and it's a very provocative conclusion you're drawing. If I understand you correctly, you're suggesting that um, Standard Oil monopolized the opportunity part of the equation, but then uh, did not monopolize the risk bit, um, tried to externalize as much of that risk as possible, yeah. thereby creating um, a, a large set of people uh, aligned against the monopolization yeah, that's a great point. So um, in terms of material opportunities, so as a material, kerosene promised a lot of um, efficiency and 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 um, especially in terms of the production. So it came from the underground with the pressure. So it's really easy to extract and it's not hard to refine it. So okay. it, it promised a lot of um, business opportunity for, for a lot of people. And also um, in the consuming side, it is really efficient fuel compared to the organic aluminum because it's mineral energy resources. So, and, and also it promised versatility. So um, these consumers not only use um, kerosene for um, the illuminating purpose, they use it as a servant and they use it as a kind of um, material to replenish their furniture. And they also use it for intoxicity, for gardening, I mean. Mm -hmm. So, so this is a really, there are many these kind of material opportunities there, but Standard Oil tend to monopolize that opportunity by um, taking over the technology to deal with this um, materiality of petroleum and um, kerosene. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And actually, these kind of debates on technology is what led me to um, the Hackley sources mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. uh, so 
one one record I saw in heavily is um, Hendrix Manufacturing Company record. So it, it's the manufacturing company which um, produced um, some kind of uh, manufacturing appliances such as perforated screens. <laughs> I don't know what mm -hmm. it is, but, but, but initially the company was an oil company. So the founder, Aldi Hendricks, was an inventor and oilman in the Pennsylvania. And, and he was a quite a talented inventor. And he um, invented, uh, he patented a way to pump oil and, you know, some pipeline patents and also a refining process. Hmm. And, um, and when, so, so this company began its business in um, the early 1860. And after Standard Oil emerged, Rockefeller won the patents of Hendrix. Oh. So yeah, so so um, in um, 1879, Rockefeller tried to contact Hendrix and he made three contracts with him. So first he, um, so it's really interesting to see the actual document of these contracts. And the, in the first contracts, Rockefeller asked uh, Hendrix to um, to um, to to uh, build that refining facility on the Hendrix patents in mm -hmm. in some place. And then um, in the after checking it works, um, the Standard Oil made another contract with him about the exclusive commercial use of the patent in. Uh, the United States. Uh, and actually, it was quite um, generous because um, the Standard Oil uh, paid loyalty. So it was um, it was 0 0.75 cents per gallon. And it's, oh, wow. it's, yeah, it, it's, it's about 7% of the total price of the refined oil. And in terms of margin, it's up between um ten percent to fifteen percent. So it's a not bad royalty. And you know, Hendrix cannot marketize um his product to the you know the whole national market. So it's not a bad deal for him. <laughs> and, and so that's why he took the contract. <laughs> and and and, for, and on the third contract, Rockefeller offered him a position in the Standard Oil. Mm -hmm. So using that money and using that um new new um, business network, Hendrix um, transformed his company into a manufacturing company from oil company. So in terms of economic benefit, it's not a bad deal. However, um, by um, monopolizing the patents, Standard Oil took the material opportunity from not only from Hendrix, but also from the other independent producers. So I believe this is a kind of patent for um, the Standard Oil. And it tells a lot about why the independent producers oppose Standard Oil, not only because economic um, um, motifs, but also about the right to um, deal with the materiality of oil. So this is a, just one example. And more big, uh, the bigger example is on you know the pipelines, of course. Um, there's a famous story about Tidewater uh, Oil Pipeline Company, who invented the seaboard pipeline, which connect the um, Pennsylvania and the you know the European Oil Exchange. And and these kind of seaboard pipeline technology was deemed as uh, uh, stored by 
global failure. So that's the independent man or producer's perspective. And and this sense of losing control or on of the uh material place uh I guess place a uh, central lore in their um opposition. Mm-hmm. And this is also uh, told by the recent historians, such as um, Kai Williams. So he argued that in Kansas Oil War in 1905, the one of the primary argument of the independent producers is about the technology. So, so this is one um, column I would like to um, suggest how how you know the group of independent producers oppose Standard Oil, uh, and also there is about uh, fire. Something about fire, mm-hmm. so, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so when Rockefeller um, monopolized the distributing sectors, it mm-hmm. contained fire within its facilities, storage oil tank. But it left the fire in the oil field and also fires in the residence and business sector in the oil region. So I kind of aggregated um, 600 fire records in the oil region from um, 1960 to nine, yeah, 1860 to 1899. Mm-hmm. And actually the number of fire increased after the standard oil, especially in the residence and the, the, uh, the oil well. Mm-hmm. So from the uh, independent producer's perspective, standard oil just left those environmental um, risks mm-hmm. on their own. And these independent oil producers deal with these fires by themselves. Some people died because of fire and they they made some kind of civil community firefighting system, such as firefighting system to deal with these fires. And and they kind of um, um, develop a special um, entrepreneurship by dealing with the fire. And there's a legal dispute between um, the independent producers and um, the pipeline company, which was the um, affiliate of Standard Oil. And and there is a legal debate on who should um, uh, pay for the loads of fire in the tank. So so this kind of um, struggle of independent producers are really deeply associated with environmental risk like fire and explosion. So yeah, mm-hmm. so so that's uh, one column of my project, I guess. I suppose by um, monopolizing innovative technology, I suppose these new technologies are also uh, designed for safe handling of highly volatile material. And uh, by um, preventing other other participants, other agents, uh, actors in the economy from using those technologies, one presumes that um, standard mm-hmm. oil is also in that way pushing risk onto others. Yeah, yeah. And another interesting story is that even though they developed the technology to contain fire in, within its own facility, it could not contain the natural disaster, such as lightning. So a- after the um, standard oils um, emergence um, in the uh, transportation sector, the cost of fire, um, the, the main cost of fire became lightning. Hmm. So not, not accidents or technological means, but lightning. So there are so many lightning within this period. There's, I guess out of 600 fire in the region, 
about about 100 was caused by lightning so mm. they cannot control lightning because you know oil so they put oil tanks in a more um, distant place from you know the oil well and and um, the residential sector but and that you know invited lightning because it's mm. far from other facilities so whenever the lightning strikes the oil contained in the tank were burned and it just disappeared and 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 so these independent producers who um had a certificate of store of the their storage in the tank owned by standard oil argued that how you could compensate our rose caused by lightning and you know their standard oil were willing was willing to compensate the rules, but they there was the debate about how to price mm-hmm. the burned oil. So that's another part of uh, this uh, independent producer struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how did the anti-monopoly forces coordinate and um, come to take uh, perhaps political action? It's a really great question. So. Um, so I, I recently wrote an article in um, JGAP about how the political coalition between independent oil producers and American middle-class consumers was possible. So uh, what I <coughs> examine in the article is the consumer culture of kerosene. So after the um, commercialization of kerosene, these American consumers, uh, um, the kerosene was deemed as the poor man's illuminant. So mm. it is for, so light was luxury before kerosene and after kerosene they could uh, more you know working class and and middle income family could afford the light. So so light came down um it's just one twentieth of rare oil. So it became really cheap. Mm. And, and so in Today's currency, you could only pay for just maybe it depends, but generally, you if you pay two hundred dollars a year, you can. Uh, in today's currency, two hundred dollars a year could uh, make your life every day. So it's a really it became really affordable luminant, and mm. and yeah and um so so. In the early period, it was deemed as the poor man's illuminant, but as um, the consumers um, developed the consumer culture of kerosene, it became the middle class's illuminant. So there mm-hmm. is a great story about it. So, mm-hmm. uh, so they had to deal with. Um, so, so, so on the one hand, they can seize the cheap light and they can read at night, and in you know the in United States, it really connected to. Um, the you know sort of the mag- magazine revolution in the late 19th century. So these um, new readership came to learn knowledge from you know those periodicals. And on the other hand, they had to contain the risk within their homes. So it's really there were steps to consume kerosene. First, you need to find the good oil. So, so in order to find a good oil, you should be an expert. So not only you should um, smell the oil and you should um, check the color that should not be yellow color. So, and, and also you should implement 
a technology called test, which called the fire test. Mm -hmm. So this fire test is um, a measure, it's a means to measure the risk of kerosene. So it was, um, initially it was invented for the professional inspectors. So, and, and in Britain, which by the way, consume, you know, more kerosene than Americans. Anyway, so in Britain, this fire test was conducted mainly by the professional inspectors who had a license from the government. But in the United States, this kind of governmental effort to regulate kerosene was there, but it's not really effective. So um, these um, uh, chemists and, and, and domestic advisors encouraged the ordinary users to implement fire test by themselves. So they need to check the temperature of kerosene in which um, the oil took fire. And, and, and it's not very complicated experiments, but it requires some professionality. And, and, and because of this um, lack of um, regulation or the inability of the public protection, um, these American consumers were much more uh, clo closer to the material and, and they need to um, not only check um, by with the fire test, but also they need an extra care of the maintenance of the oil and, and lamp, that kind of stuff. So these kind of efforts were conceptualized as a kind of social consciousness by the home economist in the late 19th century. Hmm. So as you know, you know, the home economics movement is about making the middle-class home in America. And in that movement, kerosene was really central. So, so by the um, late 19th century, um, 1890s, kerosene became the middle-class fuel. So not only for aluminum, but also you know, in pesticide for gardening. So gardening is a kind of very middle-class practices at the time and kerosene immersion to take care of the bugs were deemed as an essential material for gardening. So there are a bunch of stuff, yeah. And, and, and so, this evolution of the middle-class consumer culture of kerosene was, I argued, captured by Ida Tavel. So um, Ida Tavel's famous history of the standard oil company is different, can, can could be differentiated from um, the previous public writing on standard oil in many ways. So um, there are a bunch of public writings against standard oil, such as, you know, um, Halley Royd's um, Wells Against Common Wells, but that those previous writings did not uh, suppose a coherent readership. Mm -hmm. But Ida Tavel's um, um, new series, from its very beginning, uh, intentionally considered the middle-class consumer of kerosene as their primary audience. Mm. So I, I read some kind of personal notes of Tavel and how she designed her massive project. project. And, and so for, from the beginning, she didn't know that how long it would be. So she only had three or four chapters. But, but even that... Um, stage, Tavel conceived uh, the middle-class consumer as her primary audience. And she um, she um, intentionally designed 
her narrative to appeal to the middle class consumers. This was really important because um, from the perspective of political economists and policymakers, consumers had really little incentives to participate in antitrust movement. So this, uh, to tell this, we should um, take a glimpse on the, um, the history of economic ideas. So um, during the 1890s, um, most economists assumed that monopoly might lower the consumer price. Mm -hmm. And because of that consensus, which was backed by a new um, economic conception concepts like potential competition and 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 actually there is more advanced um, statistical skills to actually find um, the relationship between the integration integration of the industry and the consumer price and they concluded that um, this uh, monopolist might um, might be evil but it might benefit the consumers so mm -hmm. they couldn't think that the consumers would support the antitrust movement. So um, for Tabel, it her one of the, in my opinion, what one of her primary aim is to overcome this um, this assumption. So she mm -hmm. tried to find uh, editorial strategies to appeal to these middle class consumers. So that was to reinterpret the public image of independent oil man. So before um, Taber's writing, um, many public writings on independent oil producers is uh, depicting them as some kind of um, the speculator and the boomsters, and, and there was no order in the oil region, but mm -hmm. Taber just destroyed that public image from the first chapter. So in her first chapter, she talks a lot about how civilized and professional these independent women were. And she put a lot of effort to um, describe the um, technological inventions of these oil producers and how they use the engineering and chemical knowledge to tame the um, nature of petroleum. And, and so after she completed her first task, she um, depicted the standard oil as the, um, the, the plunder of that technological improvements. So this narrative um, strategy uh, kind of, in, um, I think, served to uh, build a coalition between um, these middle-class consumers who <laughs> thought they themselves were the professional class to tame the kerosene with the you know independent producers and 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 in the last part of her narrative she kind of so that's really interesting argument on the consumer price of kerosene so she acknowledged that the nominal price of kerosene products were declined thanks to standard oil but she focused on the margin mm -hmm. So she argued that even though the consumers were seizing the low consumer price, there was still margin and most of the margin were taken by the standard oil, especially in the domestic market. 
So in this sense, um, Tabel kind of provides, and Tabel argued that those profits should be equally distributed among the independent producers and consumers because mm -hmm. they were those who actually deal with the nature of kerosene and petroleum and standard oil just without directly dealing with the material, it just plundered the uh, the technology and you know mm -hmm. those apparatus. So this argument um, and strategy of Tabel was realized in the Kansas oil war in 1905. So that's the main argument in the article. So that's one way to connect those different uh, anti-monopolists in uh, different places by um, some kind of political strategy to appeal to, you know, social consciousness derived mm -hmm. from the experience with kerosene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, Min-Sug, I just find your work fascinating and I can't wait to read your dissertation when it's all done. Thanks for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can go to hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.